Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Lisa Marciano, a licensed clinical social worker, a writer, and Jungian analyst in private practice in Philadelphia. She is the co-host of the popular podcast, This Jungian Life. She teaches at the C.G. Jung Institute of Philadelphia and lectures widely on Jungian topics. Her writings have appeared in Quillette, Aereo, and Psychological Perspectives, among other publications. She is the author of the book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, published by Sounds True, to be released on Tuesday. I welcome Lisa Marciano to Savage Minds. Your book is set up around the metaphor of the well, the trope and the journey, also the fairy tale referent. You mm-hmm. write... The symbol of the well frequently occurs in myths and fairy tales. It's a rich image symbolizing contact with the deep life-giving waters that mysteriously well up from the underworld, the unconscious. In Celtic mythology, sacred wells were points of access to the other world and their waters had magical or healing properties, end quote. I was looking at the construction of your book in three parts, down the well, at the bottom of the well, and surfacing, which has beyond a Jungian sense, it does have that mythical sense that I even think of Jane Campion's The Piano of a Sort, because she uses that submersion into water and will the subject come back up? That's Mm -hmm. the end. The third part is, does the person surface? Yeah, that's that's really a great amplification to uh, to think of that that film. You know, the, the thing is that that motif of a descent and return is a mythologem. It's an archetypal motif that occurs again and again and again in myth, fairy tale, art, story, movies, but also in, in life, and and it it also happens to parallel what we know are the three stages of, of um, initiation. So, you know, in, an, in a kind of traditional tribal initiation, the young person is separated and then has this kind of period of um, time in the liminal world where he goes through trials and then he is returned to the community. So, so this has deep, deep roots this mythology, which which tells us about its universality. Why did you choose the well per se, given that, as you know, from the archetypes of Christianity, you have also, without the water, you have the tales, the very many tales of being lost and return, whether it's the prodigal son, whether it's one of Jesus's disciples. And so this tale of falling out and coming back to the fold is a leitmotif within Christianity. It can be said as well for Judaism and Islam. Yes. Well, you know, first of all, um, fairy tales are my first love, and they are the language that I speak most fluently in terms of symbolic material. And obviously I use fairy tales throughout the book. So I wanted to pick a fairy tale image and I wanted to pick an image that was particularly associated with the feminine. So although, as you and I are pointing out, this is a, a, a motif uh, throughout all kinds of religions and um, 
artistic traditions and uh, it's spread far and wide and it applies to both men and women. The particular way that it appears in fairy tales that involve a woman, a heroine, often involves a descent and specifically a descent uh, down a well. Now, that's not the only way it appears, but it is a pretty common way. Yes. And then going back to the ways in which descent has been made figurative in art, I'm thinking of Rodin's The Gates of Hell and Dante's Descent into Hell. So you have mm-hmm. all of these voyages that become part of the discovery of self, which is the center of your book. And I really love it. I'm going to refer to the very beginning of the book. You write, one of Young's most important ideas is that we continue to grow and develop throughout the course of our lives. According to Jung, we never stop growing and changing. In fact, as we age, we have more opportunity to become ourselves, to tend to the unfolding of our unique blueprints, to grow into the oak trees. We came into the world with potential to be. Jung called Mm. this lifelong maturation individuation, which I really love this quote. I kept thinking about it in terms of current cultural debates over individuality and the way that people are always saying my true self, my authentic self, my individual identity. And I'm thinking this is very different than that. Could you explain what individuation is in the backdrop of today's hyper-focus on hyper-individualization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've thought about that a lot too. Well, first of all, let me just talk about what individuation is from a Jungian perspective, and then I'll try to address your specific question about the context of the current cultural stuff. And if I get astray, Julian, you'll just bring me back. Okay. But I don't think I will. Okay. So, you know, Jung is famously difficult to read because he, he's not a linear thinker. He's a very discursive thinker and writer, and he tends to, I think in a way that's really ultimately good, but can be frustrating. He doesn't really nail his concepts down very tightly. So if you want to know what individuation is, Uh, you know, you can look up all the references to that word in the collected works and you will find, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen different, slightly different definitions. So, you know, he says that it's the lifelong process of becoming an individual, but it's a little bit more than that too. Really, I think what he's getting at, and I, I try to really nail this down in the book for my own purposes is the process of integrating more and more of uh, your potential that's in the unconscious. And I don't necessarily mean potential like, you know, you're good at flute. I mean, all parts of us, all parts of us, you know, that, that the, 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 you know, there's good and bad. There's all kinds of different things in all of us. And coming to terms with those different parts and having an experience and a conscious relationship with those different parts, that I think is individuation. So it's, it's, it's not deciding who you are and then sticking to that and making sure that that's the way the world sees you and that's how you see yourself. You know, that's something more like the persona. Individuation is being 
willing to be open to being surprised by who we are. You know, if you're lucky, something will happen to you every 10 years or so where you'll think, oh my God, I never knew that I was capable of that. And I mean, you'll, you'll be in a stable marriage and think everything's great. And then you'll fall in love with somebody. I'm not even saying you'll have an affair. Maybe you'll have an affair. Maybe you won't. But, but maybe you'll fall in love with someone and you'll think, oh my God, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I could be married for 15 years and then fall in love with someone else, you know, and it'll upset your world and it'll throw everything up and you'll think, who am I? But if you, if you're open to it, you know, and, and that might mean not rushing to act it out, but not just shutting it down either, but thinking, what, what? what do I need to know about myself here? You know, you're, you're going to learn more about who you are. Um, you'll have different adventures happen to you and it will introduce you to aspects of yourself you didn't know about. Maybe some really good ones, but maybe some terrible ones too. I mean, what one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that if you are a mother, you will discover that you are a horrible, mean, sadistic person. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Bay Weldon, I use her quote in the book. Um, she says, the best thing about not having children is that you can go on believing that you're a good person. Yes, I remember reading that and I kept thinking, yes, because I'll tell you, Lisa, yeah. the first thing that happened to me, I'm a person that I, I'll tell you a story. This will tell you a lot about me. I was doing work in Buenos Aires on the children of yes. the disappeared. I had been dealing a lot with my research about what was going on. And I began to be very suspicious of even the present police officers, even though we're talking years later. So I go into a shop to top up my mobile phone. And there was a police officer right behind me in the queue who tried to chat me up. And he was being very polite, friendly. Where are you from? And I just was like, what do you want to know? Like, I was rude to him. I left the shop. I walked about 10 steps. And I thought, oh, that was rude. I turned around. I walked back. And I apologized. So in essence, I'm pretty quick to recognize when I do something crappy. And yeah. I did that. But skip two years later, when I had a child, the first thing I felt was guilt. It's this weird thing. They cry and mm -hmm. you feel like, oh, I haven't done enough to meet that need. And they want something yeah. and you're thinking, oh my God, I screwed up. Like being a mother, this is my first instinct for me, was an avalanche of having guilt at my footstep constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And your book, I was really taken in by the way in which you weave stories with narratives of some of your patients and then extrapolate between the two to tell the reader, basically, in one chapter, you say, you might not recognize yourself in this person. You might recognize nothing. You might recognize fragments. But that's the nature of the journey of the self as well, is being able to not only read the fragments, but leave the fragments. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so... So, so it is this experience, lifelong experience of um, integrating more of, uh, of what's in the unconscious, essentially. So individuation, to, to return to your question about 
um, you know, the problem with the word individuation is it, it sounds like we're talking about individualism or individuality. And, and it's not entirely unrelated because part of, be, part of the project of individuation is to differentiate ourselves from our family of origin, from our tribe. So, you know, there, there are people who simply um, take on the values, for example, of their family of origin, and they never question them, and they don't ever really separate emotionally or psychologically, and they just kind of continue on that path untroubled. And I, I think the word individuation is important in calling up this notion that we do have to go through a process of discernment about what are the values from the culture that we feel we want to adopt, that we want to consciously identify with? What are the values from our family of origin that we want to lay claim to? But which ones might we want to be? Well, that's not really me. I, I want to live my life a little differently than my parents did, or I want to live my life a little bit differently than the culture says I should. So that's part of individuation. But um, in, in essence, uh, this notion about, you know, my authentic self and, and this kind of extreme individuality, um, it is a project of the ego. It's a project of the conscious personality. It doesn't have a lot of openness to an upwelling from the unconscious, and it's very directed by the culture. So what I was saying just a minute ago is you know, we, we might have to really um, do some spade work to figure out where, where we authentically lie versus what the culture tells us we should be doing. I think a lot of people who, um, who, who talk about this notion about the authentic self, one of the reasons that I'm a little suspicious of that language when I see it is because it seems to me that even though people feel like they're adopting this highly individualistic stance a lot of times when they're using that language, they're actually following something that looks like a trend or a mass movement. So I, I really am suspicious about it being actual individuation. I also think that individuation is a slow process that doesn't usually come with big ahas. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing where you have a revelation about yourself and the next day you wanna post it all over social media. Like, hey, yesterday I got in touch with the fact that I can really be, uh, you know, a, a son of a bitch. <laughs> so I know that I'm more individuated now because I know more about myself. Like you're not gonna post that on Instagram, you know? Um, so, so it, in fact, I think individuation often feels the experience of it is often humbling that we realize in some sense that we have to let go of some of the um, pretty illusions about ourselves and deepen into something where we're maybe um, more complicated, we have more gravitas, but we're not necessarily shinier or better or um, uh, you know, again, more Instagram post worthy. So when people have a revelation that they claim, you know, they've contacted their authentic self, a lot of the time it feels like there's a little bit of inflation in it. Like I'm so special. I actually think individuation, the further it goes, the more ordinary you feel. 
Well, we're living in an era, Lisa, of hypermediatization. Thinking back to 30 years ago when the internet was beginning and it was largely used to write emails. If you remember Archie, I use that for bibliographic searches at libraries. But the internet was nothing akin to what it is today. And mm -hmm. I see that this search for authenticity that we seek out is often not even that. People call it that, but I view it as a larger seeking of community where what your book deals with is a, uh, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to just say it, a soul searching, an examination of the self in a more narrative Freudian tradition. I know you're a Jungian, but I'm saying Freud in the sense of what he refers to the failure of translation when he speaks about the partial breakdown of the self story, opening up a new psychic space, which he calls the unconscious. In Freud, there is this notion of the failure of translation where the self story opens up a new psychic space, one mm -hmm. which he calls the, the unconscious, but it's a way that memory traces are integrated into the coherent self narrative that constitutes our unconscious. The way that psychoanalysis uses stories of the self to not only reflect the self, but in a sense, you're knitting a new way of seeing yourself through words. How does that relate to Jungian narratives of the self? Jung had a very different idea about the unconscious and he had a very different idea about the self. So let me, let me try to um, take a crack at, at those concepts a little bit, and maybe I can ease into the question. By the way, I want to say that, you know, I it was really important to me that my book was written for, for, you know, intelligent, thoughtful mothers who have no background in Jung at all. So I was tried to be scrupulous about limiting myself to jargon. And I did so I kind of gave myself, I, th I think there's three Jungian terms that I use in the book. Um, and, and I picked them very carefully. And one of them was individuation. And the other is archetype and the other is shadow. And um, otherwise, you know, there's, there's not a lot of uh, dipping into the more theoretical stuff at all. I mean, I hopefully just elucidate the concepts by using them it's, it's not a kind of crash course in, in Jungian thought. It hopefully is a little bit more uh, pleasurable to read. <laughs> that was important to me. In any case, um, the unconscious for, for Freud was um, the, a place where uh, things went that were repressed or forgotten and maybe there were some things that never quite made it above the level of consciousness, the threshold of consciousness. And so that would be in the unconscious too. For So for example, you know, memories of your third birthday are somewhere in the unconscious. Um, all the memories of your, you know, interacting with your caregivers are somewhere in the unconscious and, and shape you in ways that you're often not aware of. Uh, Jung, absolutely believed all that was true about the unconscious, but he also felt that the unconscious was a wellspring of um, creativity. It could give birth to new life, to new ideas and new attitudes without 
any uh, input from consciousness. And Jung also had the idea of the collective unconscious, which is, the, you know, he used the, the metaphor of the rhizome. So the, the rhizome, you know, like these um, massive mushrooms. I think the largest organism on earth is a mushroom. It has this massive rhizome under the soil. And then individual mushrooms pop up from it. And we look at them and we think they're all individuals, but really they're all connected to this underground structure. And that's very much the notion of the collective unconscious. I think I'm an individual, but my deep unconscious is connected to the collective unconscious that we're all tapping into. So you see that we're in mysterious, almost metaphysical territory. Um, so the unconscious is the home of our worst impulses, our darkest secrets, but also our highest impulses too, including something very much like spirituality. Um, in terms of the self, uh, you know, Jung had this term self with capitalized S which he thought of as the center and the circumference of the personality, or he even called it the God within. So it's that sense that, that I think most of us have, that there's some higher consciousness within me that's very, very foreign, but that sometimes I can feel its effects in my life. The way that you narrate your book it's so beautiful because, as you mentioned earlier, you don't resort to a more structural outline of Jung. You tell mm. the stories. I think it really is wonderful to read. I had a great time entering into these stories and these lives and almost as quickly leaving them in a, mm. in a certain levity that allowed me, as a reader, to access my own stories because you're reading them and you, oh yeah, I can relate to that. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll go into one of them because I really found it touching for my own self. Here you talk about in chapter one, losing freedom. You write this, to be thrown down the well is to find yourself at the mercy of inner and outer forces beyond your conscious control. Above all, such a descent will initially involve multiple losses, including the loss of freedom, the loss of control, and even the loss of yourself. There are many ways in which we as mothers will be cast down the well. Finding our way back can be more difficult for some of us than for others, depending on the situation, the nature of our relationship with our child, and how we parent it. Now, there might be people out there who wonder, well, why is this only about the mother? Why can't fathers also experience this? You know, I, I think that that's a really good point. I've worked with um, men who were the primary parent, and I think a lot of what I talk about here also applies to, to fathers. It probably applies to all fathers to a certain degree, and certainly to fathers who are acting as the primary parent. But I can really only speak from the motherhood experience and you know, because I'm, I'm a mother and I wanted to focus on that particular experience. I mean, there certainly is another book to be written about fatherhood. I doubt that I'll be the one to write it, but I think you could take many of these same ideas and develop them slightly differently. I noticed in that piece I just read of yours, two sentences later, you talk about the sense of self. And this is something that a lot of feminists have 
cued in on as well that women, when they were girls, are not instilled with an incredibly, I'm speaking generally, an incredibly firm mm -hmm. sense of self, either familiarly, within their peers, within their schools and society. And so that might be part of what could differentiate, even let's say you're dealing with fathers who are primary caregivers, would they have similar experiences to women? I mean, some might, but I don't know about the vast majority because you write this, you say, your journey down the well will likely be painful and fraught, but it will also invite the possibility of connecting deeply with your ground mm -hmm. of being. Now, clearly, this could apply to men and women equally, but there is something that comes back in later chapters in your book when you're talking about either women coming to terms with the abuse they suffered at the hands of their mothers and or the way they relate to their child and try to protect them from that. And they mm -hmm. dip too far the other way. And one mm -hmm. of the lessons I'd learned in reading this book is that going down the well is not necessarily a negative thing in itself. Well, it certainly is unpleasant and frightening, but it's, it definitely is not negative uh, per se, because it, it is through these kinds of initiatory experiences that we grow and deepen. I mean, I think deepen even more than grow, you know, that we develop an inner life. Yes, and you speak about this when you write that the loss of a woman's freedom is inevitable, tragic, and unredeemed. Mm -hmm. If this version of the tale is our truth, as I believe it may be, sadly for some, then motherhood will not be an experience of growth, but a stunting of it. Mm -hmm. And you have a tale in your book of someone who became a mother at a very young age, 19, she was extremely beautiful, was a model, and then suddenly, boom, in these shifts that because of our bodies, something men don't experience, but because of our bodies and giving birth, even if we plan for the birth, you've been there, I've been there, before you have your child, you have no clue what motherhood is. You can read all the books about it. You can watch all the rom-con movies and go, he has snot on his shirt, but it's not real life, is it? Mm -hmm. No, it's not. It's not. And, you know, I, I think you're lifting up some of the ways that um, that motherhood might be different from fatherhood. Uh, and, and some of those are cultural. But, I, you know, we're, we're now into this territory of how much of the differences between men and women are innate and how much of them are, you know, sort of socially mediated. And, um, you know, obviously it's some mix of both. And I, I don't know that I can put my finger on exactly what's what, but I, you know, I, I think it, I think it is true that there's a kind of, um, I mean, I mean, if only because under most circumstances, it's, you know, if you, if you're, if you're giving birth, it, it affects your body you know, in this, in this way that obviously men, men will never know that they will never have that experience. They will never have that physical experience of, of gestating, giving birth, nursing. We do feel it as a limitation. 
So then the chapter is entitled Losing Freedom. What could be more loss of freedom than the physical self in the sense of the childbirth? I've always told people this, this is my experience, was the easy part. It was the being tethered to a creature that sucks on you for two years, in my case, for each child, two years. And you are at that mercy. You can be hungry. And if that child is feeding, you're going to be waiting to eat. <laughs> and so our loss of freedom is rooted in our bodies initially. But then yes. you go on into issues within your storytelling. I love the story of the Selkie. So wonderful. And you present this as an opportunity for the subject, the mother, to grow. You say to become more grounded, by ult but ultimately she is not able to do so. Tell us why. The Selkie, you say, has neither name nor a unique identity, but you instruct us that this is the lesson for a larger panorama of situations. Can you explain that? Well, so the story of the Selkie, it's a, it's a, I believe it's a Scottish tale, and there, there are many different versions of the Selkie tale, but, but um, basically uh, Selkies are uh, creatures who are, who are seals who can transform into humans, which is just a great image because if, you know, if you think about looking at a seal, they have those very soulful human, almost human-like eyes. So there's a, the story goes that there's a, a small farmer walking along the coast at night and he sees these three beautiful naked women singing together on the rocks and he's just enchanted. And when he takes a step closer to them, they all slip back on these gray skins and dive into the sea. Uh, but he can't get them out of his mind and he, he goes around trying to discover how he can have a Selkie for a wife. So he learns the secret and the next time that he's out walking and he sees them, he very quietly slips around and he grabs one of the skins. And as soon as the Selkies hear him, two of them slip on their skins and dive back into the water, but one of them is left shivering on the beach. And he goes over to her and he's very kind to her and he puts his coat around her and says, you know, I'm going to take you home and you're going to be my wife and I'm, I'm going to be a good husband to you. And, so she goes with him and he's as good as his word. You know, he's a, he's a good husband. They, they have several, you know, fine children. Um, one version of the story that I read says that although she loved her children very much, they never saw her smile. And then one day her youngest son says, you know, mother, why does father keep an old skin behind the loose brick? And she says, show me. And so he shows her and um, she uh, grabs it. She leans down and uh, looks her young son in, in the eye and, and gives him a kiss and a hug. And then she sprints down to the water and she's never seen again. And, and so it's this image of um, marriage and motherhood felt as a kind of entrapment, a loss of freedom, a loss of our, um, kind of wild nature and, uh, and, 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 and always a yearning to return to the open ocean. And there are people like this. There are women, I know, I know women like this. I, you know, talk about it a little bit in the book, you know, where, where, yeah, they, they're married and, and they love their children, but there is a part of them that just 
fantasizes about, you know, leaving and moving to Paris. You know, there's a, there's a way in which there's some part of their soul whose need has not been met. And that, that can be, that can be really painful. Um, it's easy to look at this story and read it from a kind of, I want to say kind of feminist perspective. I'm not a big fan of feminist readings of fairy tales because they're not psychological or symbolic. So there's a way to read this, which, which has some legitimacy to say, well, this is about a woman being subjugated to a man and, you know, he abducted her basically against her will and, you know, forced her to be his wife. And, and that that's true. And that does happen both actually and also, you know, we can be sort of psychologically abducted. Um, but, it, but there's another way to read this story. So that's, that's not a wrong way to read it. It's just not the only way to read it. The other way to read it is to see the small farmer as an aspect of her psyche that wants her to get more grounded and grow up. And she, you know, she can't really quite do it because as soon as she has the answer to the, the opportunity to leave, she does. So there, the, the transformation, there's a lot of fairy tales about uh, shape-shifting creatures and marriages. There's the shape-shifting bride or the shape-shifting bridegroom is a whole, it's a whole thing in fairy tales. Sometimes it's the woman, sometimes it's the man. And they all, they have very different outcomes, but but this is this is one of the stories of an incomplete transformation. You know, so uh, you know she's she 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 hasn't been sort of finally altered. She's just held in stasis in her human form and is always waiting to go back to the sea, which is why he has to hide the skin from her. So, and, and what that means psychologically is that we've stepped into a new phase of life, but we're not deeply, deeply committed to it. There's some way we haven't cut our ties with the past or with maybe, if you want to say, even possibly kind of childish fantasies. You know, at some point we have to, dis we have to sacrifice our youth. And that is often required of us at the moment that we become a mother. You, you can't have kids and then continue, you know, partying late at night or, you know, wondering who the next guy you're going to date is going to be. No, once you have kids, you have generally, you've been asked to sacrifice the youthful pattern and commit yourself to the care of the next generation. And that is painful. And no one really talks about the fact that it's painful. Well, that's interesting that you bring up the feminist narrative because when I was reading one, I think it was the first chapter, I saw that you were not going there, which I rather liked because I think feminist readings of the text, unfortunately, and this is where, this is my criticism of feminism, uh, writ large here, is that I don't think heavy-handed victim narratives are useful for understanding the self when we're talking about psychoanalysis of any sort, because life is very clearly not black and white, and it's not about full stops that you 
you end there. It's about the full stop and moving on and another full stop and moving on. It's something that we encounter in anthropology all the time. James Clifford writes about this, Vincent Crepanzano as well. And I think what your rendering of a Jungian psychoanalytic space here through narratives yields is a far richer terrain for understanding selfhood, sacrifice. Yes, there is sacrifice here when you have a child and you give up not only your freedoms as the first chapter entails and losing control as the second chapter entails, but you then go through this point of realizing that the sacrifice might be forever. Like it's not like the lockdown that you know when it's gonna end. You don't literally know when it's going to end. When will your child be so autonomous that not only will they not need you and you'll have your freedom back, but what if what you wanted all the time for those first, let's say 12 years comes true and then you're left with a new paradigm, a new problem of, but my child doesn't need me. You know, um, I, I appreciate how you put that. And I, I do think that there's something about a Jungian frame that does, let's see, your words were, uh, it's sort of a richer terrain. And, and that was certainly my experience and why I was attracted to it initially. It's, it's like, oh, well, this is a way of understanding things that, that doesn't nail this down into, uh, you know, one, one, one way of looking at it. It leaves open multiple possibilities that can that can all be true at the same time even if that's kind of paradoxical um yeah you know the the word sacred comes from the latin for i'm sorry the word sacrifice comes from the latin word for to make sacred and life is full of sacrifices and i mean that not in the pat way um you know you don't get something new uh, without giving up something else. There is no new life without the death of the old. So we're, we're always dealing with um, sacrificing something to, to get the new thing or to become the new thing. And again, I think we're terrible in our culture recognizing that I think our culture's conscious narrative is you can get the new thing and you don't have to give anything up. You can get and get and get, you can get more and more and more, and you'll never have to make a sacrifice. And of course that has implications for our uh, global economy. It has implications for how we treat the planet. You know, I mean, even just, um, you know, I just moved. So I have, uh, this is fresh in my mind. You know, when you buy something new, not only has there been some kind of sacrifice of, of what was required to create that product, not only was there the sacrifice of the money that you spent your time earning, there's also the sacrifice of the space in your house because now you have a new object and you have to figure out where to put it and you're responsible for it. And if you move, you have to either decide to throw it away or move it with you. You know, So all of the time, everything we do we're, we're, we're giving up something to get something else. And this is counter to capitalism because capitalism mm -hmm. is never about letting go. It's about consumption, containing, keeping, amassing. Yeah, so we're not even used to thinking in terms of here's what I have to give up. And sometimes we feel like if we have to give up something, it's wrong. 
or it's um, yeah, that there's something wrong with that, you know? So, so that sense that we had to give up something in order to uh, have children, well, heck yeah, you, you did. And, and that just simply is, and the only thing to do about that is to create some space to mourn it. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I'm also thinking of the ways in which the sacred, what you were saying earlier in terms of the word sacrifice, is related to the profane and the way societies historically have worked through this dichotomy of the sacred and profane. I'm thinking to Mercia Eliad's work in this subject mm -hmm. and how we in the West today, like you just said, we think that if we have to give up something that that is not only a negative, but giving up something doesn't always mean a loss. That's right. Yeah, I was yeah. in an ashram in, in India, in the South. I was waiting for my Sanskrit teacher to come out for my lesson. And there was a woman, an American <laughs> at the next table. And she said, oh, I've learned humility and sacrifice. I shaved my head. And I got really angry when I heard this because I was pondering in these months, the loss of my child. Mm. And I just looked over at her and I said, that's not sacrifice. That's not even loss. It's a modality. It's a moment. And it really struck me that you have all over India, a lot of foreigners popping up to find themselves again, their authentic or their yogic selves. And there's a lot of rubbish linguistically and spiritually that occurs among some of the expat communities that show up in Gucci yoga clothes and they're always going off about finding themselves. Ironically, as I tell them, but I found you, you're right here in front of me. So I like to play with these folks. I'm sorry, I can't help it. I'm a little bit of a provocateur because I think this too becomes a commodification mm -hmm. of something that we ought not to be commodifying, like that uncomfortable space that people are left in when you're, you are left with the muck of life, the, the dredge of life that happens. It happened to me more than ever after the loss of my child. Mm -hmm. And you do end up in this space of, wow, like life sucks. Okay, you have all these emotions. But what I discovered in the months and the years following my son's death, mm -hmm. bizarrely, is that the crappy childhood I had served me well. I realized I would never have survived this experience had it not been for that. And it's a crazy thing to say, but I had a friend shortly after who came to Montreal and she confessed something that had happened to her. A horrible crime had been done to her as a child. And I was shocked and she was sitting in front of me and I was on the verge of tears as she told me this. And she says, but you know what, Julian? I'm glad it happened because I would not be who I am without it. Yeah, yeah. And this is sort of the way I feel about my son's death as well. I think that in our capitalist Western 
pop psychology wish to be your own best friend, women who love men, men who hate us, and so forth. All these victim narratives of either division or overcoming because I know I can do it. Remember Stuart Smiley from SNL? <laughs> All of these tropes of forgiveness and of self-healing are somewhat meaningless and unidimensional when you come up against the loss, the real losses of life and the silence that takes place after, mm. even prior to telling one's story. Mm, mm, the silence. Mm. Yeah, I think... Um... There's so much in what in what you said that I want to respond to and, and kind of unpack. I mean, first of all, um, talking about the, the the people, the people in Gucci yoga clothes, it goes back to what I was saying before about there being a kind of inflation or hubris in it. And again, I'm I'm distrustful of anything that makes me feel too special. <laughs> because I think the process of growing down into ourselves is a little bit more like the, um, the, the sawhorse and the velveteen rabbit, which I, I quote somewhere in the book, I can't remember now where, but you know, the sawhorse says to the, to the velveteen rabbit, you, be, you become real, you get your fur rubbed off. You know, that's how you become real is you, you lose your stitching. <laughs> You know, it's, it's not the process of being elevated. It's a sinking down into our embodied selves. And it's about feeling more ordinary. Given the media onslaught that we face every day, even aside from social media, think of the films that most people are given access to, rom-coms. We know that life is not a rom-com. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunately the genre that most of us hate the most which is the soap opera. <laughs> now the soap opera people are like, oh, that's a bit too much. But I think a lot of people's discomfort with the soap opera is because it is more lifelike. Mm, that's interesting. You don't have the happy music while you're shopping in Fifth Avenue, but you were a prostitute in the previous scene, but now you're the wife of a millionaire. You know what I mean? Like that's not real life. What is real life, even though it's not at the same time, and I'm a huge fan of Mexican and Brazilian soap operas, but it's that insane narrative of the gardener's sister who went blind after she got on the comet, found out she was married to her cousin's brother, and it goes on and on. Now that's not like real life, that's sort of real life compressed. What is like real life is the bad acting, you see? Mm. <laughs> oh, that's great, that's great. I really like that, yeah, yes. You know, I was thinking of that in terms of the way in which your book comes against this too. I mean, the, the muck of real life. But then the stories themselves are healing because in not just the stories of the fairy tales, I'm thinking of the story, I referred to it earlier, your story of Michelle Herman, who, as you say, could not continue on her path of growth and individuation while she was so invested in clinging to the ever receding past of her daughter's infancy. Mm -hmm. Neither could Monica grow and develop. Hanging tight to her daughter prevented her from facing her grief over her traumatic childhood. So what you have taught the reader at this point in the book is that not going through a painful, I don't wanna call it catharsis, but an experience mm -hmm. can hinder one's growth, avoiding pain is not good. No, no. In fact, I think 
being able to mourn is uh, essential. You know, be, being able to let go. Being that—that's the only way we can can move beyond our our current our current place. Any kind of growth requires us to mourn. You know, speaking of which, I want to I want to go back to what you were saying before because I think it's so important. You were talking about your own experience with with losing your child, which is just uh, it's. It just must be that the most painful thing and recognizing that it was your own difficult childhood that gave you the fortitude to withstand that and or the story of your friend you know first of all there is um something called post-traumatic growth syndrome and i have certainly seen this in my practice in fact there's a there's an anecdote in the in the book um where i didn't go into it in detail but the the, the, the chapter on authority contains this clinical vignette of this woman who, who had just, a, just about every adverse uh, childhood experience you could have. There was sexual abuse, there was violence, there was drugs, there was alcoholism, there was addiction, there, there was violence, um, there was incarceration, there was poverty, there was divorce. There's, I mean, I think, abandonment. I mean, I, I think I've, I think that's a pretty, oh, and teen pregnancy. <laughs> and, and this, this woman is um, just, you know, fabulous, luminous, uh, incredible mother, um, you know, multiple advanced degrees. And she's just, you know, she's amazing. And I, I you know, I, I, and I, you know, it's like, well, how the heck did that happen? You know, because that's not supposed to happen according to the trauma narrative, but but we we absolutely know this is true that some people go through a traumatic experience and they grow because of it. In fact, there's 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 something I remember hearing about where someone sort of cataloged a bunch of really highly successful people and looked at their life narrative, and one of the things that many of them had in common is they had lost a parent in childhood. So there can be a way that a difficult experiences can um, make life more difficult. That is cert that's certainly true. That's certainly true. The research on adverse childhood events and say later um, physical and mental health. I mean, on a population wide level, we know that this has negative impacts on an individual level. You cannot predict what's going to happen. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it does do a disservice for us to think only in terms of, oh, you had trauma, so you must be impaired somehow. And I want to just share a quote from Jung that I think is just really brilliant right on this. He says, but no matter how much parents and grandparents may have sinned against the child, the man who is really an adult will accept these sins as his own condition, which has to be reckoned with. Only a fool is interested in other people's guilt since he cannot alter it. The wise man learns only from his own guilt. He will ask himself, who am I that all this should happen to me? To find the answer to this fateful question, he will look into his own heart. That's quite beautiful. Well, it's it's staggeringly different to what we're being taught as a culture. It is the opposite of uh, 
sort of identifying with the victimhood narrative. And I think at the end of the day, that that narrative, well, it's already failing. We're seeing the creaking signs of it falling simply because unless we address even power, even unequal power, where of course I would never deny that there are not oppressed and oppressors. I do think that the narrative is much more subtle than that in most cases. There are absolute cases of complete oppressors and complete oppressed. But those are usually narratives of ethnic cleansing. There are narratives of rape, Mm -hmm. of other atrocities that happen, of exterminations. Right before I got on with you today, I had an email from one of our readers who was very upset that I gave the time of day, this person writes, to a rabid anti-Israeli hater. Uh, a journalist who covers the Middle East. We've lost the sense of nuance, I fear, that we need to be able to reach across the aisle, not only politically, but emotionally. In fact, I'd say that reaching across the aisle politically necessitates an emotional reaching across the aisle because you need to be able to not abandon judgment or feelings, but you do need to sort of put them in a corner to allow the other person to express their ideas yes and our narratives of it's all or nothing it's black or white it's victim Mm -hmm. or oppressed and it's you are anti-israeli if you criticize the bombings of gaza there's no subtlety there and Mm -hmm. there's no room for breathing i think that the narratives that your book addresses even between the lines get at that space where we need to pause and we need to also understand that we are part of a larger process. We have our foot on it. Right, and I I think one of the things I love about a union way of looking at the world is you say, well, it's like this. And they go, yeah, it's like that. Can it also be like this? Oh yeah, it's also like that. Okay, well, and can it be like this? Well, yeah, it's like that too. So, you know, we can, and, and this is a very good way to look at the world. I think generally it's a super good way to look at the world. I think is if you're a therapist, because someone comes in with a particular narrative and it's like, oh God, yeah, that's, that's really true. You know, and maybe over the course of working together for many months, you could say, well, and, and this is also true. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that's also true too. Well, and it can also be this so that, you know, I mean, Therapy hopefully is about expanding the range of possibilities about how we understand things rather than narrowing it. And, and obviously I, I think the, the sort of um, some, some of the narratives out in the culture tend to really narrow these things. I wanna say something else about what you were just talking about, which is um, you, know, you know, part of the, the impact that postmodern thought has had on uh, you know, these, these social justice movements is it denies the idea of the universality. And universality is just, I think, critical. Well, it's critical to a Jungian frame because that's the whole notion of the archetypes and the collective unconscious is that we all have the same, we, I mean, not, we, not just that we have the same psychic structure as anyone else, which I think is undeniably true. Like how, how could, how could I be deep on a deep level? How am I any different than anyone else? You know, um, 
but we're actually all connected in this mysterious way through the collective unconscious. So, you know, if you, you say, well, it's, it's kind of absolute that this group, they're the oppressors and they're the victim and this is an absolute thing. And it's like, well, in a moment in time, that might be the case. But really, there's there's no difference, really. I mean, maybe that's really offensive to say, but I think it's true. You know, on on a on a kind of absolute level, you know, there is nothing human that is foreign to me. You know, and and there there really there's there is no uh, innate um, uh, absolute difference between someone in an ethnic group that's oppressed another ethnic group and a member of the ethnic group who's been oppressed. We're, we're all capable of everything and we'd better know that about ourselves. One person whose work really has affected me in the way you just describe it on a political narrative level is Norman Finkelstein, who's worked the Holocaust industry sent shockwaves through academia, resulting ultimately in his being no platform from academia. And his work is so important because the deeper tale of Finkelstein's work is this. If we do not address the present, we are bound to repeat it. It's not only about history. We need to be able to see in the present, the history. It's very easy for people to say, I remember as a kid, grandparents would say, history repeats itself as if History were this machination that had batteries in it and just marched forward without any input from humans. The use of history in the passive voice as well, it came to pass as the Bible goes, right? But we have input because we are the makers of these actions. And so Finkelstein points out the Holocaust industry and the way in which pinpointing blame uniquely it's important for historical record, absolutely. But we also risk making the mistakes of the past when we try to resuscitate the good, bad narrative all over. Mm -hmm. This was a critique that was brought through to Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. But if you watch, let's say, Fassbinder's Berlin Alexanderplatz, you get all the levels of history right there. In fact, it's a very Jungian analysis. You know, I have watched Berlin. Underplots, all of it. <laughs> and that story tells the dirty version of history, which is the good in the bad in all. Mm -hmm. And so when we put history on this playing field of the innocent over here and the bad over there, so you do have this excising of responsibility from certain quarters and an overweighing of responsibility from others, we tend then to use that as some kind of template going forth. Absolutely. And we're seeing some of the downsides to that. We've seen it in our lifetime. And I don't just mean Israel and Palestine from this past week. Going back to your reference to the culture today and this will to see purity or evil. This is how, of course, people are wanting to find their authentic selves in a world where your only choices are angel wings or a pitchfork you got some searching to do so so i, I want to bring up another union concept and, and throw in a quote <laughs> this 
is a, a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that it's a very well-known quote. You probably know what I'm about to say, but it, it just, it sums up exactly what you're talking about. He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So eloquent. Um, and this is, you know, this is exactly what Jung says again and again and again. And he talks about the shadow, this part of ourselves we would rather not know, which ranges from things that we were not allowed to be when we were kids, but uh, but maybe they're important parts of our personality that need to be related to as we as we grow older. But also what's in the shadow, some of it's actually evil. And how do we deal with that? How do we come to terms with that? And and, and, and how do we come to terms with the evil in us? We better know about our capacity for evil. We all have a tendency to project it out there. So they're the evil ones. And I think that's what you were talking about with, uh, with Schindler's List or, or this lack of nuance. We project the evil out there. And I think that this is part of what happens in these cultural purity spirals is we're projecting our shadow. Um, and in the book, I talk about, you know, how motherhood is a great opportunity to meet your shadow because you will, you, as I said before, you're going to discover that you are capable of things you did not know you were, you didn't want to know you were capable of. Tell me, Lisa, what are some of the surprises you've had from some of your patients as to what they least expected to be capable of through motherhood? Well, I think the number one thing that comes up is, is the degree of rage, you know, it, and it feels, you know, it can feel pretty, pretty primal, you know, that, that, you know, you, you, you thought that you were just in love with this little person. And then that little person becomes a toddler. Say, I mean, people hit the rage place at different points in their kids' lives. <laughs> For me, it was not when she was an infant, <laughs> That was like, yeah, this is easy. This is wonderful, actually. Love this. Not that it's easy every second, you know, but in general, it was so delicious, you know. And then when they're when they're toddlers, that was that that was hard for me, man. That was that was rough. I mean, they're adorable. My God, they're so. There's toddlers are cute because if they weren't, you'd kill them. Exactly. I tell my wife this all the time and my kids at times. I said, if you weren't so cute, I would have eaten you already. I understand what cats do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and I mean, and they're so funny. I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's awful, but boy, the rage, I just did not know I was capable of that, that degree of rage. And, and just, you know, the, the kinds of dark ideas I would have. In your book, you talk about one of my favorite stories you talk about is Demeter's loss of her adolescent daughter to the abduction into Hades' underworld. And you write, so beautiful. I love the way you retell the tales because something that I'm obsessed with are tales being retold in the sense of if you want a story of Ganesha in India, you won't find one, you won't find 10, you'll find dozens because mm -hmm. there are literally dozens of tales and the tales exist because of retelling, right? right? So you write, she wandered far and wide distraught, 
At last, exhausted and grief-stricken, she sat beside a well in the town of Eleusis in the guise of an ordinary old woman. Some local woman approached her and offered her a job as a nursemaid for their beloved infant brother. And you go into the ways in which loss is not only part of the tale, but it's the way out. Now, you would think being offered a job as a nursemaid would be an insult. I mean, in today's society, for sure. But you also reclaim the loss of Demeter's daughter within your tale of your patients. That story of Demeter and Persephone is so profound. It's so profound. And I, I did a lot of reading and thinking about it while working on the book. And I only a little bit of that makes it in. But, you know, there's so many different ways to understand it. But I, I think one of the things that I was... Um, well, the way that I chose to look at it for the purposes of this book is that, um, and again, it's just, it's so layered, but, you know, Demeter just, so one of the, one of the ways to look at it is, you know, Persephone was this, um, well, she was called Kore, the maiden, and, um, you know, she was just described as the maiden with the slender ankles, and she's out picking flowers, and she gets abducted oh no and of course it was this big plot between Hades and Zeus and everything and um and 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 there's this outrage of the mother who's had the daughter taken away from her but the thing is that you know it's sort of like okay and at some point Persephone had to stop being the maiden and she had to leave her mother and what looks like an abduction from the standpoint of the mother may in fact be an important initiation on the part of the daughter that, you know, so it's both and, I'm not saying it's just one thing. I'm just saying this is another way of looking at it. That, that she, she, it wasn't, it wasn't actually, it, 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 it was an abduction, but it wasn't only an abduction. It was also this girl's plunging into her own depths. And of course, she becomes Persephone, queen of the dead. She's a very powerful, fearsome um, uh, figure in Greek mythology when, when she's re referred to as Persephone. She's, she's quite, quite powerful. So she comes into her own power and authority and that only happens through this loss of innocence and, and leaving her mother. But Demeter can't see it that way. She can only see like, damn it, you took my daughter from me. You know, she's sort of the smother mother a little bit. And I, I think that she, when she becomes the nursemaid um, in Eleusis, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating uh, image for me because I, I think that there are a lot of women who feel really bereft when their kids grow up and then they just want to be around babies. You know, I remember, I remember after my, my second child was born, I was in the hospital and the, the, um, the lactation consultant came into my room just to see how things were going. And she saw my, my little infant son and she was like, her eyes lit up and she's like, you know, I want to hold him, you know, and, and she, she was holding him and she said, oh, I love newborns. And I, got it because you know a newborn 
you know, it's like they've just crossed the threshold from the infinite into this lifetime. And they, they, they have, have this, it's like, you know, and I thought to myself watching her, I'm like, she is the lactation consultant because she doesn't ever want to be away from this. And, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, I think the same thing with Demeter. She's like, I don't, I, you know, it's like the mom who, you know, once her kid leaves home, all she wants is a grandchild. You know, Demeter's like, I lost my baby. Now I want a baby. <laughs> so she starts taking care of this little boy and she decides that she's going to make him immortal, which requires him to, I think she feeds him ambrosia by day. And at night she has to bank him in the fire like a log. So she has to cook him every night to make him immortal. You see, she doesn't want him to grow up and change and be subject to the ordinary mortal kinds of ways that we decay. She wants to, she wants to protect him from life, which is, we all have that impulse as mothers. I mean, Julian, I, I imagine that you must know this in this truly heartbreaking way because you've you've suffered the loss of a child, you know, like that's so unthinkable that we would all, if we could like to bank our children in the fire and cook them so they become immortal. But, but that, that would mean a stunting of growth. And so eventually this process gets interrupted because the child's mother comes in and, and sees, <laughs> sees her kid in the fire and she's like, what's going on? And Demeter kind of reveals herself in her goddess glory and says, well, now you've done it. You've screwed it up. But, but, but she hasn't screwed it up because we have to release our children to their fate. We have to allow them to go off in life, you know, hopefully in, in adulthood and in a way that we can feel reasonably confident they're, they're going to be safe. But part of the heartache of being a parent is there is no guarantee. The thing I least expected in my life was to have a child. After that, the last thing I expected was to lose this life at seven weeks. But I also took so much love from certain friends. There were two events that helped me not put a pin in that, but to be able to move through it, not on, but through it. And one of them was a lovely friend of mine, Noritoshi. We were having our Chinese congee soup one day I was with him in New York and I told him about my son and he said, oh, so your child decided to go. And I looked at him and I just thought, well, that's a wild interpretation, but I didn't say anything. And I thought, yeah, that's really what he did. Like, because you have to be able to live with the most painful thing ever. And there is nothing that comes close to that. I thought my brother's death as a result of AIDS was the most painful, but it wasn't. That was hard as hell, but the loss of my, my beautiful son was beyond painful. So I really thought I was gonna lose my mind. I obsessed over George Bush choking on the pretzel. I got a little bit too much into the Madeline disappearance. I started to attach myself to everything and anything, investing meaning until you, little by little, I forced myself to move through it through other stories. In Canada, they send you to the hospital to be evaluated by a psychiatrist as soon as you lose a child. To be evaluated by a psychiatrist as soon as you lose a child. And she said, well, you know the score, you're an intelligent person. 
I'm giving you 40 tablets of these sleeping pills. So I took them oh. and I said to my oh. friend, I said, okay, 40 days. Do you know 40 days are the number of days that you mourn in Islam? So this is very symbolic. And I read symbols into everything, Lisa, I did. But oh. mm -hmm. at the end, when I was in London doing research on childhood death in, this, in the 18th and 19th centuries, that's when it really mm -hmm. hit me. I was like, wait, I'm human. See, we are living in an era where you and many others haven't necessarily had this experience, but skip to 150 years ago, and there would be far fewer people standing in the room that had had the experience of having no children die, you see. There is a book that I read and, and, you know, I read so many books on motherhood. There's a book, a really remarkable book I read that didn't really make it into my book, but I suppose informed it in the background. It's a book called A Potent Spell. And it's, it's a book about kind of what we as mothers know in ourselves, which is that, you know, for most of human history, many children died in childhood. And, and you're absolutely right, Jillian, that, you know, kind of ch child loss was, was incredibly common. And, you know, I, I love that you said you, you were doing this research and you realized, oh, I'm human. And it, it brings to mind the Buddhist story of the mustard seed, where a woman lost her child and she carried her child with her, um, you know, asking at every house, can you, can you help me bring my child back to life? And someone said, well, go talk to the Buddha. So she brought her child's body to the Buddha. She said, please, I, I cannot bear this. I, you must bring my child back to life. And the Buddha said, okay, what I need from you is, uh, you, you know, is, is, a, is a cup of mustard seed from a home that has not been touched by grief or loss. So she goes, great. So she goes out, she starts knocking on every door. A few days later, she came back. She said, I understand now. <laughs> There's no house that has not been touched by grief or loss. That doesn't that doesn't exist, and it's not a reasonable expectation. And um, suffering is is part of our lot in 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 one way or another. And I think that um, that takes me back to what I was talking about a, a minute ago is about the universality of that experience. Um, even though you're right, it's certainly not very common now, thank goodness. And yet it still is a universal human experience in the sense that it is of being human. And, and it somehow that is the thing, just like in the story of the mustard seed, that helps us bear it when we go through heartache to know that it is part of the human experience, to be connected with the universality of that horrible thing, whatever it is, that is what helps us get through it. And so I, I think that um, taking that away from us is, is really, uh, and by it, I mean, taking away our ability to relate to uh, the human race as, as our heritage writ large, instead of breaking us up into identity groups. It, it really saps us of a great deal of our resilience. Yes, and it also speaks to this idea that our culture today is about chiseling out individual identities, not locating any kind of personal identification that we could have with another, because we want to believe exactly. that we are so unique. 
the American form of pop psychology from the 1980s onward was all about self-realization and overcoming because you can overcome everything, which is why is it any coincidence that the disenfranchised, the poor are barely seen because we don't allow for it conceptually. But we do have to make lemonade out of lemons or be Mm -hmm. crushed by that. But to what degree, to what sweetness Mm -hmm. that lemonade will be. Hence the end of your book, The Claiming Authority, your last section. You write, when we can listen to the deep wisdom of the archetypal old woman and claim some of her authority and understanding, we are better mothers. We are also closer to being whole. We live authentically. For many women, it may not have felt possible to claim our authority before having children. It was too painful or frightening to stand up to the voices that told us we didn't know what we were talking about. I'm a very strong person now, but I was not always. I had to find my voice. But I'll tell Mm -hmm. you, one direct route, passing jail, passing all of those stops, when you have a child, you will leap over hurdles to keep them out of harm's way, to access certain ideas and thoughts that you never thought you were capable of. Mm-hmm, exactly, exactly. And I, the, the story I used for that part, and this, this was very much um, true for me and, and my personal experience, and I tell a personal story in that, in that chapter, is um, The Handless Maiden, um, which there's a very, very widespread tale many different versions. Um, I, I use a, a little bit of a kind of hybrid version in, in the book for, for a couple of reasons. Um, but uh, at, the, at the end of it, you know, just really quickly, she, her hands have been cut off, uh, a wound from the father. Her father has cut off her hands and she's been cast out into the forest. She has these two children on her back, or is it, is it one? I can't, it's different in different versions. Anyway, she, she has these two children on her back. She comes to a, a pool in the forest and she's thirsty and she wants to drink. And there's an old woman sitting by the pool and the handless maiden says, you know, can you help me? And the old woman says, you can do it. And the, and the girl says, but if I, if I lean over to drink, my babies are gonna slip off my back and fall into the water. And the old woman says, go ahead, do it. So she does, she leans down and her babies fall in and the handless maid says, help, help, my, my babies have fallen into the water. And the old woman says, um, you can rescue them. And, and the, the girl says, how? <laughs> and the old woman says, plunge in your stumps. And she does. And in that moment, her hands grow back. And to me, this is such a poignant image, even after all these years and working with this story so much, I still get a little emotional uh, thinking about it because I think it's true. I think that in, in finding these inner resources, we didn't even know were there to, to protect our children, say. We heal ourselves. Thank you.